I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Relationship Between Religion and Belief. One thing I discovered is that the challenge to religion is not its opponents from without, but its believers from within, and that a real enemy of religion is belief itself. Now, that's a complicated point, but that was the insight with which I began this book, really. That's author James Carse, and the book he's talking about is called The Religious Case Against Belief. In it, he turns a lot of widely accepted ideas on their heads. Belief usually defines religion, as any dictionary would show. Carse argues that belief is often the enemy of religion. Beliefs, he says, come and go, but religions persist. Some have a lot of beliefs, some almost none. But even those with a lot preserve their identities even when those beliefs change. James Carse is a scholar of the history and literature of religion, which he taught for many years at New York University. Today on Ideas, he shares his thoughts on the nature of belief and the nature of religion as we continue our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. The series is presented by Ideas producer David Cayley. The existence of religions is something that's pretty well taken for granted in our world. Asked what they are, our unreflective answer would likely be systems of belief. But this idea of religion as a belief system doesn't appear before the 16th century. A religious disposition certainly existed. There was prayer and praise, pilgrimage and pageantry, but it consisted more in practices and attitudes than in articulated beliefs. Then thinkers like Edward Herbert began to search for universal criteria by which religions could be defined. Religion came to be seen as a set of private beliefs, rather than as a set of public practices. By 1700, English historian John Bossy writes, the world was full of religions. Objective social and moral entities characterized by system, principles, and hard edges. Today, this definition is just assumed. Religion is what I believe. James Carse challenges this idea. He makes what he calls, in his book of that name, the religious case against belief. The book addresses a question that I've been asking myself for a long time. How can one believe or disbelieve what is finally unknowable? Carse's answer is to conceive religion not as belief, but as the practice of what he calls the higher ignorance. I called on James Carse recently at his home in rural northwestern Massachusetts, and he began our recorded conversation by remarking that the debate about religious belief, touched off by books like British biologist Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, often revolves around what he considers to be the wrong question. The current discussion about belief, which has been quite lively, as a matter of fact, uh, makes a mistake. It focuses on whether a belief is right or wrong. And that, that's a legitimate question. But 
my interest was to look at what a belief does, what function does it serve. And I realized that one aspect of belief is that it tends to conclude a discussion rather than initiate one. When you say, this is what I believe, you've come to an end. You really reached a barrier. And don't try to move me from that barrier. Belief, as James Kars conceives it, is a stand, an unshakable position, which as such ends rather than begins a conversation. And typically, he says, it's a stand not just for something, but against something else. When someone says, this is what I believe, what they have in mind also is what I don't believe. And as a matter of fact, just the very character of belief depends on that opposition, on the, on the resistance to my believing. Uh, one doesn't even say I believe unless there's already an assumption that there's something other people don't believe. And so much so that they actually have to encourage opposition to keep their own beliefs alive. So that a, a deep believer, a true believer, a passionate, someone who passionately holds to his or her views, will try to be provocative in some way to the opposite point of view. It's as though they carry two sets of beliefs, that uh, disbelief and belief, that somehow fit together for them. James Carr sees belief as something that is defined by and depends on its opposite. It actively seeks out and, if necessary, provokes opposition. Modern revolutions provide Kars with plentiful examples. The French Revolution, when it ran out of opponents, began to consume its own during the Terror. The Russian Revolution had an even more insatiable appetite for enemies. But believers, Kars says, often fail to notice what it is that they're actually doing. Insight is available only outside the boundaries of the belief system, and a powerful authority keeps the believer within these boundaries. Like a famous American bumper sticker says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Authority is conceived as a powerful and unquestionable dictation. But this view of authority, in Carson's opinion, is one-dimensional. See, once you set up a system, and beliefs don't really matter unless they belong to a, a rather comprehensive, large collection of, of views, insights, and so on. And if you have a really good system, it tends to explain everything convincingly. From within, if you're within a belief system, you can explain anything in the world logically from within that system. So therefore, the role of authority is very important because you're not deciding what you should believe, but you are, because of your membership in this belief system, you have to exercise a kind of loyalty to the overall system. And authority becomes, therefore, uh, not only crucial, but powerful in an unusual way. But the authority can be a lot of different things. It could be a church, it could be a, a text, uh, it could be a figure, it could be a theory, an idea, and so on.
What dimensions of authority are absent from that view? Well, the other, the other way of looking at authority is to actually take the word authority and realize that an author doesn't copy someone. An author actually originates something. It's a creative activity. And so the, the other view of authority that often is overlooked or completely forgotten, perhaps by a lot of people, is that the people who have authority are people who originate ideas that other people adopt freely, or rather even more, stimulate other people to their own ideas. So actually, the word author comes from has an interesting Latin source. It's a little obscure, but I always found it fascinating. And autor is, autores is someone who brings a message in from a distant land and therefore has the sole knowledge of this place, wherever the, he's coming from, and is believed. The fellow is trusted uh, that what he's reporting is true. So if we look at that form of authority, it's, it really implies someone who's been somewhere we haven't been, has been creative and also honest in reporting it and accurate. But since we can't go there, we have to do our own thinking about it. And he doesn't have a lid on what we're supposed to think. And so a powerful authority would, you know, just take a really simple everyday example, Shakespeare. Everyone considers Shakespeare an authority in the English language. And the more scholars look for what Shakespeare says, the more they find that he says what no one else has caught. You know, in other words, there's a kind of originality in the interpretation of Shakespeare that it's not just repeating what Shakespeare says, but it's restating it in a way that requires one's own uh, deeper insight. So we could look at Shakespeare as an authority in the sense that it's a stimulus to creativity all around itself. It's a creativity that stimulates creativity. Authority, James Carse argues, can be understood either as what persuades us by its originality or as the restrictive power that keeps us safely within the boundaries of our beliefs. And for the believer, there must be a boundary, a line, in Carse's words, at which thinking stops, because it's the boundary and the opponent beyond it that defines the belief. And this limit, in Carse's account, divides believers not just from their opponents, but also against themselves. The only way you can be a believer is to suppress a lot of your own free thinking, a lot of your own originality, and so on. And if we understand that every person is by nature creative and original, then what you're doing is really repressing yourself. And, and I, I would even go so far as to say that true believers are... Uh, believing not only against someone else, but in many ways against themselves. And that's why it's not surprising when you find within a context of, of true believers, a lot of people who violate 
those beliefs, uh, you know, sexual predation and uh, so on among moralists is so common that it's, it's almost laughable. So that, that to me is evidence of a kind of self-contempt, a self-hatred, a self-cancellation, that once the denial of oneself, the rejection of oneself, releases a little bit, then you get a completely opposite kind of behavior. Is there an example that's in your mind? Well, it's everybody's example in a way. It, uh, what's happening in the Catholic Church, where uh, one of the most central commitments of a member of the clergy, Catholic clergy, is to live free of sexual activity. Not free of sexual feeling, obviously, but, uh, but free of every kind of sexual activity. But that's one that's being violated quite frequently to everyone's horror and shock. So that's a sort of grand example. But if you look at people's ordinary everyday lives, you see them contradict themselves in, in many, uh, many different ways. One I love is that when Jesus said, uh, take up your cross and follow me, I don't quite think he meant a $300,000 a year salary for a minister of a big church. <laughs> There's something about that. It just doesn't quite work out. But if you ask that pastor to present his own views of Jesus, you'd get, take up your cross and follow me, I'm sure, among other things. So uh, I, th I think of that as an example of uh, belief in, in contradiction to itself. Is contradiction inevitable in belief, uh, in your understanding? Yeah, not, not necessarily. I mean, if you, once you're inside a belief system, contradiction disappears. In fact, logic prevails. One of my favorite belief systems, simply in terms of its power and cleanliness and brilliance is Marxism, where once you're inside the system, there is no end of explanation for anything that occurs. And you can be completely convincing as a Marxist. And they were, they were awesomely convincing to a whole generation of American and other philosophers and thinkers in that one period, the 20s and 30s mostly. Let's think of it like this, that a, a belief system has very clear boundaries. There are things you are not supposed to believe, not supposed to pay attention to. Uh, look at the way Islamists regard women, for example. I mean, one of thousands of examples. There are even thoughts about women that they find wrong. So think of those boundaries, which you may not violate, which are designed or which are placed in perfect opposition to what's outside it. And then turn that around a little bit. Let's say that you have boundaries, but the boundaries are porous, and you're looking for the holes. Then it becomes not a, a belief system, but a system of inquiry. And Inquiry does require a system. It's a collegial, collective effort. This last point is crucial to James Carse's way of thinking. The opposite of a belief system 
is not anything goes. Even to speak, one needs a pre-existing language. A coherent inquiry, the investigation of a scientific question, let's say, or the exploration of a certain historical period, requires both a community and a tradition to make any sense at all. So the difference between belief and inquiry is not between system and non-system. Rather, it has to do with whether the boundaries that define and make possible the initial inquiry can subsequently shift and expand. No believer will say, well, this is what I believe now, but, you know, maybe next week I'll believe something else. If they really believe it, they believe it's true now and forever. That's one of the appeals of sacred literature for a lot of people, not, not everyone, but for a lot of believers who have the idea that it's already there, it precedes you, it's timeless, and all you have, your job is to find out what is there and then fall in line behind it. Now, if we think of the way science works or literary criticism or uh, anything of, the, of that broad intellectual character, nobody really assume, assumes, for example, to go back to Shakespeare, that what he said is timeless, that it's all there, it's a complete piece, and what we have to do is understand what it is. Uh, everyone knows that, or I mean, any serious Shakespearean scholar knows that there are things to find there that no one else has seen and that reflect more the nature of the inquiry rather than the object of the inquiry. Right. So for belief, the past has to remain fixed. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the future. So if you are committed to a certain belief system, it not only tells you where you've come from, but where you're going. Absolutely. And that's why Marxism is so interesting, in the sense that it can tell you exactly where it all begins and exactly where it all ends. It's what scholars like to call an end-of-history system, where reality finally catches up with itself, where intellectual inquiry finally arrives at reality and even social behavior changes. So yeah, the beginning and the end are fixed. History, therefore, has very little meaning. In the sense that it can't be rediscovered, reworked, yeah, reinvigorated, the, it can't come alive and right. show, show us something new. Right, it's right. It's over. It's over. It's over. That's right. That's a good way to put it. You know, another example of that is in some of the ways that the Supreme Court reads the Constitution. You know, there's a doctrine called originalism, which means that the responsibility of the judge is to make decisions on laws based on what is not only in the Constitution, but was what was in the minds of the people who wrote the Constitution. And so that's fixed. That's a finished product. Other interpreters say it's a living document where there's much to be discovered there. Uh, that we don't know about. And there are many ways of using it we can't predict. That's a very sharp uh, division in legal theory and discourse. James Carse, to summarize, 
defines belief by its rigidity and closure. Belief is always belief against. It creates a boundary at which inquiry must stop. It divides believers against themselves. It adopts a one-dimensional view of authority as restrictive power, and it fixes the meaning of the past and the future forever. Surprise is ruled out. These are the characteristics of belief, and often the characteristics of religious believers. But religion outlasts belief, and so, Kars reasons, it must, at bottom, be something quite different. You're listening to Ideas in Canada on CBC Radio 1, across North America on Sirius 159, and around the world on cbc.ca. Today, we're continuing our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. The series is presented by David Cayley. Religions are among the most persistent expressions of human culture. Some scholars, like René Girard, would go further and claim that culture itself is the child of archaic religion. But even if we just look at the major contemporary religions, we can see that most have traditions, or are offshoots of traditions, that go back thousands of years. This is proof, for James Carse, that what defines these religions is not their beliefs. Because within each religion, beliefs vary tremendously, both over time and among different sects. A book was published uh, by the Yale University Press called The Major Creeds of Christendom. It's a five-volume book. There are hundreds of major creeds of Christendom, each one in some degree disagreeing with another. So what, what that means to me is that although Christians emphasize belief, belief has a very loose relationship to Christianity itself, and it doesn't get you to it. Because Christianity goes on, has a continuity, has an identity that preserves itself, in spite of all this back and forth and so on, all of this controversy over the nature of the Trinity, the nature of the Incarnation, what salvation is about, baptism, the Eucharist. There's no single view of any of these things, and yet they all occur within historic Christianity. I find that amazing. I mean, really amazing. I can't think of any other organization or institution that that has that kind of longevity and is, in its course, able to reconcile or overlook all those contradictions, arguments, and so on, and remain intact. From the beginning of the Christian tradition, the scholars and the believers who were trying to represent Jesus' real position never arrived at any serious agreement. And as a matter of fact, if you look in a library or look over the history of literature, it, and if you looked at, oh, I don't know, 70 or 80 languages on Jesus, you would find a quantity of books 
mountainous number of volumes, right? And everyone disagreeing with another in some way. Now, I find that totally wonderful. What is it about Jesus that causes all of this explosive growth? And of course, everyone wants to come along and say, oh, I know what it is, it's this or that. Of course, seconds later, someone will jump up and say, no, you didn't get that right. Which means that within Christianity, really, when you think of Christianity as a religion and not a belief system, Jesus is the other kind of authority, namely the one whose creativity, individuality, and so on, inspires an enormous range of thought. So somewhere in the center of that, there is, I like to think of it as the opposite of a, of a black hole, just something blowing out in all directions uh, to keep people animated for years and years, including uh, people who don't believe in him. They simply can't forget the guy. You know, why don't you walk away from him? But people can't. They can't do it on either side. Now, what that means to me is that there's a religion here. But defined as, I'd like to use the word conversation, very active, deep, searching conversation that goes on for millennia. But belief in it is very ephemeral, unimportant, and so on. Religions retain their identities, James Karst says, even when there are deep internal differences in their beliefs. And they remain distinct from one another, without mixing, even when they live as neighbors and share remarkably similar views. For two millennia, 2,000 years, Judaism and Christianity have been living right next, in fact, within each other, Christians very often speak the same languages as Jews, they have the same professions, and that can be a lot of languages, a lot of forms of life, but almost never does anyone say, I'm not sure today whether I'm a Jew or Christian. They know when they wake up what they are. So why hasn't it mixed in all those years? Islam and Christianity too, in fact, all three of them, lived in each other's midst for centuries, especially in, uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, mostly in Spain and Africa. So if two elements or three don't mix with each other, they clearly have some kind of individual identity or vitality or something that the others not only don't have, but uh, can't acquire and don't understand even more. So that's my big view of religion. But it's not a matter of belief. Not at all. As you've tried to demonstrate with the variety of Christian creeds. Yeah. So what is it a matter of? Well, What is the principle of identity within religion? Yeah, that's why I love the the discussion. I don't know. And I defy anyone to say what it is that holds it together. I do have a kind of existential view here, but I admit it's only a view. It's a kind of preferential way of looking at human affairs. And that is that I'm fascinated by the fact that Christianity does repeatedly develop belief systems. And I want to know why that happens in Christianity. And my existential analysis is that whatever it is at the center of Christianity that constitutes that identity, that mysterious center, is so mysterious 
so unknowable that it's terrifying. And one of the ways you protect yourself from it is to set up a wall of beliefs around it. And therefore, in a way, belief systems operate against Christianity. James Carse's argument here comes in two parts. He asserts, first, that Christianity has produced an astonishing, possibly unequaled variety and quantity of belief systems. This seems undeniable. It took seven full councils of the church between the years 325 and 787 just to iron out the basic doctrine. Then, in 1054, the Eastern and Western churches split. One issue, among others, was how to understand the Trinity. Did the Spirit proceed from the Father alone, the East position, or from the Father and the Son, the West position? Other religions have been much more sparing with doctrine, Judaism, for example. But the reason for Christianity's luxuriance, Karst thinks, is the paradox at its heart, the explosive idea that God could be a human person and a human person God, an idea which makes Christianity, Karst has written, the religious narrative most disturbing to the ideological mind, a story that defies explanation and thereby promotes it. Kars also uses the example of Christianity to refute the idea that each religion can be reduced to a basic mythology, a core story. For Buddhism, release from suffering. For Islam, submission to the will of a merciful God. For Christianity, the emptying of the divine into the human, and so on. I had put this to him as a possible answer to the question of what gives each religion its identity. But he would not agree. We know about Jesus primarily through the Gospels, the four Gospels. Now, any unprejudiced reader, or uh, any open-minded reader, I should say, of the Gospels, will note immediately very grave distinctions between them. They had a different Jesus in mind, each one of these fellows. None of them knew Jesus personally. None of them probably even spoke to people who did. And they spoke a different language than Jesus. So the variations begin immediately. Uh, at one point, I mean, if you read them next to each other, at one point you have the family of Jesus going in one direction, and the other one you have going, they have them going in the other. You know, <laughs> they pass in the night. So if you want to isolate the mythic core of Christianity, you could offer it, but it would not be very widely accepted. So it's not a myth. It's not an institution, as we know. I mean, that's been broken up a thousand times. It's not financially, psychologically driven. There, there was a theory, it was a popular theory in the 19th century that there's something called religious experience that is different from all other kinds of experience, and that, therefore, Christianity had a, a distinctive kind of experience, and that was what was holding it together. But that idea has been very completely dropped. There is no single explanation, James Carse asserts, for why religions endure and hold together. I found this claim frustrating. I'd come for answers, 
but it was clear enough that he was not being coy. His earlier, I don't know, and I defy anyone to explain it, really is his position. And yet, Karst does offer what you might call an explanation of why there is no explanation. Religion, he says, can be considered a continuing, indeed interminable, conversation. And the only condition under which this endless conversation can continue is that the questions at issue can never be finally settled. Take a serious conversation that people get involved in. What very often happens is that at some point in the exchange between one person and another, someone will say, let me tell you what this argument is about. And the other person was likely to say, it's not about that at all. And the conversation continues. But if the other person agrees this is what it's about, the conversation ends. So agreement, unanimity, really spells the end of a conversation. Uh, a lot of people talk to end their talking or end someone else's talking. But Christianity, or any the, the great religions, if you think of any of them, it's, it's like a huge conversation. People can't give up, but they don't really know what the issue is that keeps them going. To really know what the issue is would be to settle it. But then the conversation would be over. Religion, James Carr says, is, or at least should be, a form of what he calls the higher ignorance. It's not ordinary ignorance, I don't know, but I might find out later, or willful ignorance, I don't want to know. It's the recognition of a limitation in principle, a recognition that we are, as Augustine says, questions to ourselves that what we are looking for is what is looking, a saying attributed to Francis of Assisi and another way of putting the same thought. When I ask, who am I, a definitive answer is not what I'm looking for. That would end the game. It's rather that I'm naming what I am, a who, a question to myself, a continuing probe, something that arises and subsides into an infinity beyond comprehension that worships God under a thousand names. This is my sense, at least, of what Karst means by the higher ignorance. But if that is what defines religion, then religion is essentially impossible to define, except as a conversation or a quest. To come right down to a definition of a religion is doomed to fail. But then how do we use the word religion? What are we really describing? Is there such a thing as a religion? What I'd like to say is, no, there isn't. But there are traditions for which we can use the word religion if we mean a body of people deep in conversation that has been going on for a very, very long time. A body of people deep in conversation that has been going on for a very long time. That's as good a definition of religion as we're likely to get, says James Cars. And in that definition, the word body is crucial because religions gather and hold people together. They form communities. I borrowed a distinction 
relatively common in anthropology between society and community. So I, I put both in Latin form, civitas and communitas. And what, what I mean by that very simply is that community is that spontaneous gathering and activity that people demonstrate again and again where a community gets together, a gathering, a family, and so on, out of its own initiative completely. Whereas civitas, or society in that formal sense, is a top-down organization. So obviously we need both. We need some external control, but we also need a great deal of of internal spontaneity and originality and inventiveness and so on. Now, properly understood, a great religion is far more communitas than civitas. A good, you know, look at the Catholic Church, for example. It has a powerful civitas, but it's the communitas that really provides the life of the Catholic tradition. And it's a powerful communitas, too. There's a lot of community in a Catholic congregation. So a lot of people understand religion in civitas terms, like it's dogma. It's what you have to believe. It's top-down. That's what we were saying before about authority, that there's a final answer to all these questions. Someone has it, and they're in charge. Uh, That's a civitas notion, not a communitas notion. Actually, one of the more interesting examples to me of that distinction is Judaism. If you think about Jewish history, especially since the destruction of the Second Temple in the second century, where Jews were essentially driven away from Jerusalem, or, you know, largely away, and the priesthood was ended, and the temple rituals and and offices and so on, and became a a rather loose but rich gathering of isolated communities. If you start at that point and come through Jewish history, you find something really quite remarkable, namely a people that stays together as a people even though they've lived in widely dispersed communities— speaking different languages, often not being able to speak even to each other, often not even having contact with each other. I mean, sometimes they did, of course. In other words, pure communitas. There is no such thing as a Jewish papacy. There's no power in Judaism to uh, do anything to anyone. It has to be all spontaneous in some form. There are a lot of authorities in Judaism, but they can be denied. Even, even God can be argued with as an authority. So Judaism, as I understand it, is, is largely, if not almost entirely, communitas. And that's, why, that's what makes uh, Israel so difficult for a lot of, uh, a lot of Jews. I mean, Israel's civitas. And mixing the two is very difficult. I mean, really difficult. And they're discovering that. James Kars thinks of religion as primarily a form of community and of conversation, rather than as a fixed system of belief. What seems significant to him is not what people believe, but that they continue their conversation about what they believe. 
specific items of dogma matter much less. And some, even some that might seem to be foundations of religious belief, he can be quite scathing about. For example, the idea of life after death. A lot of Christians think immortality is a big part of Christianity. In fact, it doesn't even occur in Christianity until a very strong Greek influence somewhat later on, 3rd, 4th century, and so on. It's a Greek idea, not a Jewish idea. In fact, it's, there's no trace of it, really, in the Hebrew Bible. But irrespective of that, the idea of immortality is quite weird, if you think about it, because it presupposes a final state uh, in which basically nothing new happens. I mean, I, I can't think of anyone I'd like to spend 10,000 years with. <laughs> so in a way, it's an absurd idea. So I would oppose to that the notion that, well, to look at Judaism for a moment, Abraham was promised by God uh, and essentially an infinite number of descendants. He was not promised immortality. He was promised a long succession of lives, not a long life, you know, indefinite life. James Carr regards immortality as absurd in the sense of something senseless or unthinkable, a life one cannot live, as he put it in an earlier book of his called Finite and Infinite Games. In this book, he sets out a different view of death. Finite games, he says, are the games the world plays, games played for wealth, honor, and titles, with rules and boundaries, winners and losers. Infinite games are played, he says, not to win or end the game or decisively achieve some title or goal, but in order to keep the game going. Religion that has not degenerated into dogmatic belief is a way of playing the infinite game, a way of suspending the world's rules, categories, and boundaries in favor of a larger and longer view. Death, in this perspective, is a contribution to the game, something I give, not something that is taken from me. You don't die at the end of your struggle. You die in the course of it. So in a finite game, for example, the loser of a finite game might as well be dead. Think of a, let's say, a presidential election, George Bush. He's now finished. He has come to the end of his term. Who listens to him anymore? His voice is dead. He might as well be dead. We know nothing about him or don't care about him. And that's a character of all finite games. Once the game is over, the players have left the game, and either you're a winner or a loser. And if you're a loser, you don't have your voice anymore. If you think of death in finite terms, your death is therefore a kind of losing. As a mortal, you're a loser. Well, I don't see it that way at all. I see that if we think in terms of communitas, in terms of our involvement in the larger human community, all of us are deeply 
in, enmeshed in some kind of a, a, a many histories actually. And so if our lives are uh, significant in let's say infinite player ways, it's be only because they have effect on what's going to happen after our lives. Uh, as though they, they plant something, inspire something that will happen long after or sometime after they die. So we can say, therefore, that they die in the course of a long tradition or episode or you know, a series of generations. I mean, Abraham died in the course of his life as a, the founder of a religion. And that's very clear in the Bible. Abraham, it might be said, dies into the tradition he has founded. Infinite players, James Karst writes, offer their death as a way of continuing the play. They live and die for the continuing life of others. Finite players, in Karst's terms, play to win. To succeed, they must control the outcome of the game. Surprise of any kind is their enemy. Infinite players seek surprise. It's what they play for. So finite games have boundaries, Karst says. Infinite games have horizons. You can walk to the edge of your boundary. You know exactly where it is. I mean, especially, let's say, in an athletic game, it's marked on the ground or, you know, has a fence around it or something. But there's several kinds of boundaries, not only spatial, but also temporal. It begins at a certain time and ends at a certain time. As opposed to a horizon, if you see where your horizon is and you walk to it, you don't see the horizon anymore. You've got another one. <laughs> in fact, anytime you move in any direction, your horizon shifts with you. And that's why I like to say that a horizon changes with our personal vision. It's not the end of our vision, but it is the creation of our vision. And as we change our vision, it changes. You can draw an outline of your horizon, but then very slowly it becomes a boundary and you get locked in it. And that's for me why it's very, very important to uh, A, to keep a vision refreshing a vision, and at the same time admitting that it's going to be improved, corrected, changed again and again and again, not only by me, but by every other viewer following me. Well, a horizon, by definition, has a beyond. Right. A new horizon will right. have a new beyond, right. but right. there will it's always the, be more. It's not the end of anything, only the end of our vision, that's all. That's why, for me, death, in the way a lot of people conceive of it, is a boundary experience where if you die in the course of something, it's a horizontal experience. Because horizons change, James Carr says, belief should always remain provisional. And that's why he thinks, as he said at the beginning of today's program, that true believers are often more of a threat to religion than non-believers. Dogmatic belief puts an end to what ought to be an unending conversation. But is religion practicable without compulsory creeds? Well, Kars himself is an example of a lifelong engagement with religion that is underwritten 
by no fixed belief. I honestly have to say I've never been a believer. But I've never been an unbeliever. For me, unbelief is as bad as belief. So one of the ways I thought of titling this book was Neither Theism Nor Atheism. James Carse participates in the Christian religion, as he would in a conversation. Neither believing nor unbelieving, he approaches the liturgy in a spirit that is attentive, yet still bemused. It's crazy. I, I mean, eating a god? What could that be all about? <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know, in my studies, I know all that, not all, but I have a long, detailed understanding, memory of, of all of the so-called controversies over the liturgy, especially over the Eucharist. In fact, there was warfare and violence and burning people at the stake over that. But still, the church has never come to a clear understanding of what that means. And that's why I find it one it's kind of presenting one with the impossibility of interpretation, but also at the same time stimulating interpretation. So I, I love that part of the church, but currently I'm not exactly active in a church. But I, I understand myself as a, a member of an ongoing human community in a variety of ways. One can participate in a tradition without being a believer, James Carr says, but not without identifying with that tradition, not without a sense of belonging to a community and a conversation. And he sometimes worries, he told me, that this identification, this identity, is fading among Christians. There are dangers, and Christianity, I think, is in danger because the center is beginning to loosen in various ways. The identity is slowly seeping away, I believe. Uh, Christians are identifying with too many things around themselves, political views, certain cultures, and certain moralities, and so on. And they see religion through their politics, say, make it very simple, rather than politics through their religion. And as a result, that diminishes the power of that identity we've been talking about. The singularity, the power, the disturbing character of the core, that mysterious thing that's held it together all these centuries. Belonging to Christianity, as James Carse conceives it, is not a question of belief, but of affinity, of being drawn and held by what he calls the mysterious core. And this brings us back, finally, to our starting point in today's program. Belief, he says, is superficial. What one needs is knowledge. And the deeper the knowledge, the more lightly and tentatively it is likely to be held. What I found so interesting in my life as a scholar and professor of religion and, and so on is how... The more learned people are, the more they've moved into a state of wonder as opposed to a state of certainty. So when you find two very learned people talking with each other, they both understand that they're joined by a search and not by 
a doctrine, an institution, a theory, a history, and so on. And I think that that's when a religion functions best. But it requires, you see, you can't just jump in a conversation. You see all these people talking with each other, intensely talking with each other. It takes a long time to figure out how I'm going to talk to these people in a way they'll listen to me and so on. So to be a Christian really requires, in my definition, a deep study of your uh, tradition, of what's, what's behind you. And I find that disappearing rather quickly. On Ideas, you've listened to the fourth episode of our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. Our guest was religious scholar James Carse, author of The Religious Case Against Belief. The series continues tomorrow at this time. Today's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley, with the assistance of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Liz Nage is our webmaster. For information on upcoming Ideas programs, visit our website at cbc.ca slash ideas, where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter or link to the podcast of today's show. You can also join us on Facebook. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. News is next on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159.